What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another exciting episode of Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Lindner. What I do here is a daily live stream, and I put it out in podcast form. If you want to take part in the live streams, you can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner, or better yet, go to the telegram t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. Also, check out the website bitcoinandmarkets.com. Sign up for the free tier, get notified of all my content, get a free weekly newsletter. And there you can also become a full member and support me for $5 a month and support this unique perspective in Bitcoin. So I want to thank everyone that supports over there on BitcoinAndMarkets.com. If you're new, I hope you enjoy the episode. Subscribe, like, share, check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Okay, let's get into today's show. Hey, what's up, guys? Real quick admin note again up front is... All these, first off, all the charts that I talk about, I'm going to put on the post that you can find at bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash E295, E295. But uh, also in this audio recording, there's a lot of skips and little hiccups in the recording. That is not on my part editing. That is on the streaming software that records this. So um, I'm going to try to fix that in the future. I've noticed that actually on FedWatch as well. Um, maybe it is through restream that it does that, but anyway, I'm going to try to figure that out or, uh, fix that for the future. So, uh, hopefully it doesn't bother you too much on this episode and yeah, so let's get into it. What is up everybody getting everything fired up here with my new software standby. We are live on Twitter, Telegram. That's my home base. And I've added in here uh, YouTube, new YouTube channel, BTC Market Update is the new YouTube channel. So check that out, subscribe. And I'm live streaming on Instagram, I think. I've set it up. I've had an Instagram for the web, uh, for the podcast for a long time and haven't really used it. I just used it to post a couple charts every now and then. Uh, but I'm going to try this live streaming to Instagram as well. Kind of fun to do this on multiple platforms, but um, welcome, welcome. Ansel Lindner, Bitcoin and Markets. I do this live stream roughly every weekday, give or take. Um, so you can join me about this time midday every day on Thursday. So that's yesterday. I did FedWatch with Bitcoin Magazine, CK, is the co-host on that one. Um, and we concentrate on uh, central bank news. So uh, macro stuff, central banks from all around the world, um, housing markets. We've talked about China, of course, the Japan, ECB, all that stuff happens on FedWatch. And we have a really good record on that show being very accurate in the macro trends. We were a uh, strong dollar on that show when everyone else uh, during COVID and immediately after COVID was, you know, really bearish on the dollar. We were strong dollars. We, we called out uh, the China uh, real estate stuff. One of the first podcasts in Bitcoin or even alternative macro uh, space, we've called out all that stuff. So um, we've been ahead on a lot of these trends. So check out FedWatch. It's at 1230 Eastern on Thursdays. Okay. So this is my personal podcast, Bitcoin and Markets. And today, uh, what I'm going to do is go through a couple charts. There's a couple things happening in the market. 
and then uh, I'm going to react to one of Saifedean's uh, most recent episodes. It might be his most recent episode. Uh, just listen through that. Um, I think it's Pooley is the economist that he has on Pooley. Uh, and they talk about Mal- Malthus and they talk about all sorts of uh, scarcity, abundance and uh, free markets and how all that stuff works. Um, I have a slightly different view on that. So we're going to go through that. Um, all right. So let's look at a few charts here. The Bitcoin chart. And I'm going to slap on the EMAs here that I have. This is the fit. The green line is the 50 EMA. I'm going to zoom in. Let's see. So we have bounced back above the 50 EMA. I've been watching this closely. We've had two closes now over the 50 EMA. And this morning we were going to fall out of that, but we have now bounced back above the 50 EMA. And I'm, I'm watching that really, really closely. So we'll see how that's out. What other charts do I have here? Let's check out, let's turn off this EMA and let's go into the dollar. There's some moves happening with the dollar. Um, of course, I've been watching this very closely. I've said that I think the dollar is going to enter a range. I was early on calling a strong dollar, I think for the right reasons. Um, and it finally came. I had to hold on to my strong dollar thesis throughout the COVID where uh, the dollar was dipping for, you know, through 2021, uh, but then it came back in 2022 and went stronger. Um, towards the top of this uh, dollar chart, I even called close to the top using basic Fibonacci's. If you go back in previous cycles, so since the great financial crisis, um, if you go back and look at different eras of the dollar, they always seem to rally according to the Fibonacci's up to the one six, one, eight, uh, Fibonacci extension. And so I drew that out and it got up to about one twelve, one thirteen. So that's when I was kind of expecting this to go to, of course it got to one fourteen. at that time. Everyone is calling for a strong dollar. Like, Oh my God, where is this going to stop? This could go on forever and just crash the entire system. And I was like, no, 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 we we've gotten to close to the top. Uh, we're going to have a consolidation. We're probably going to enter some sort of range here. Um, and you can see it did fall down pretty dramatically, getting back to the 2016 high testing this. Um, and that has held so far, and it looks like it could be trending upward. Let's see if I have can do a, a tool here. So th- this came down very quickly, kind of flattened out, and looks like it's coming back up. And that would be ideal for this range. Now, if we enter a range, I don't know what the range will be, but what I'm saying is I don't expect a super strong dollar and I don't expect a super weak dollar going forward over the next two, three years. Um, there's been so much market destruction at this this point that uh, it's going to take a while for everyone to get used to the dollar at this higher level, and then we'll go from there. Um, so that's that's what I'm thinking with the dollar. Okay, gold had had a it's having a good day today, up to 1863 right now. But I always like to point this out to gold bugs and inflationistas, is that gold even at this level is still three percent below its high from 2011. So 11, 12 years ago, right? 12 years ago, it's still two 
3% below that high. Um, so that is deadly, I think, to the inflationista uh, narrative. And we're going to talk about the inflation narrative when we go through safe and pooly, and we go through that uh, podcast here in a second. All right, let's take a look at some other ones. Um, Carr, member of the Telegram channel, he was talking about how yields are just going crazy. And yeah, look at this 10-year down on the day, almost 4%. Almost 4% on the day. That is nuts. That is absolutely nuts. But if we slap on here, let's slap on the, this is the Fed Fund's target range. And holy cow. I mean, I thought that the Fed was in charge. But the 10-year right now is currently 16% below the bottom of the Fed funds range, which is the overnight you know, rate. And uh, sh it should not be like that, guys. It should not be like that at all. Let's throw on the two-year on here real quick. Uh, the two-year is dipping down too. Look at this. So the two-year is approaching the bottom of the Fed funds target range sitting at 4.26. The bottom of the range is 4.25. So very, very interesting developments with bonds um, and yields. I do expect bonds to rally, which means yields will go down. As you're headed into a recession, if we call this a recession or not, uh, bonds will, the yields will fall despite what the Fed does. Okay, the Fed is not in control. If there, you know, if there's a few lessons uh, that I try to teach or where I kind of differ from uh, other Austrians, you know, being I, I kind of say my school is the neo-Austrian school. So um, where the neo-Austrian school differs from the Austrian school is that, you know, they, they see inflation everywhere. They see M2 is inflation. They see uh, uh, the government debt is inflationary. They see all of this stuff. And. That's not what inflation is. That's not what money is. They don't, uh, the Austrian school doesn't know how to count money. Nobody really knows how to count money today because it's free floating and there, the functions of money are kind of split between uh, store value, medium of exchange, unit of account. They're all kind of split up with different cash and cash equivalents. Uh, so there's no real way to measure money other than looking at the interest rates. And remember, as interest rates fall, that means money is tight. Okay. It, you have to lose the idea that the Fed sets interest rates and sets monetary conditions. The Fed does not set monetary conditions. The market sets monetary conditions. And when monetary conditions are tight, yields fall. That means that we're going into bad economic times. And so yields fall. As we're going into good economic times, that's when yields rise. So if we zoom out and we look at the 10-year, okay, so from, yeah, we had uh, the big COVID dip, obviously, March of 2020, hit the bottom. It was pretty much sideways, you know, under 1% for almost a year. Then it, it, it was kind of indecisive, but it was trending upward. And then really in 2022 is when it really took off. And a lot of people are saying, you know, that's because the Fed raised interest rates. No, because look at this. Look, the trend was established back in 2020 and 2021. 
And then 2022 is when it, it really like hit that curve and started going up way before in January, the fed didn't even start uh, raising rates until March, right? March, April. So no, th this trend was totally established already. Uh, and the fed came in behind it and raised rates behind it. And we can show this if we bring back in the fed funds target range. So you can see that the 10 year was already trending up. Let's zoom in here a little bit. Let's go to the weekly. That'll make it a little bit better. Um, you can see that this trend is already established right here. Then the fed comes in and raises rates. Okay. They come in in the backside. Now, what does this tell the market? This didn't move the market because it was a mechanical function that when the fed raises their target, somehow mechanically they raise interest rates. That's not how it works. It works through market psychology. And when you're raising rates, what does that tell people? That tells people it's overheated. The market is good. Everything is out there. You know, business is booming. We need to cool it off. So we're going to raise rates. That's, that's what they're telling the market. So the psychology boosted these prices or boosted these. Yields. Um, we had a little bit right here where it looked like they wanted, it wanted to peak, uh, peak down into the fed funds target, but they got uber hawkish again. I think this was Jackson hole actually. Let's see August of 2022. Yeah. I think it was right around Jackson hole and uh, Powell's speech had the intended um, impact making people believe that, you know, things were still going. And so the rates responded psychologically, but now it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they psychologically say anymore. Rates are down. And one thing that I was saying is, you know, will the Fed want to lose face and keep raising rates if the 10 year and the two year and all these, these, uh, everything basically passed. Well, let me take a look at a four week. Where's the four week? What's the four week doing? Um, where is that? I don't have that on this chart. I do have the three month. Let's take a look at the three month. So three month is peaking up above this range acting similar to how it has in the past. So we'll have to be watching that. Uh, but I think the four week is still down below here. Um, let me find this. Hold on. Sorry, guys. So it's it's rallying too, but it's still below the Fed funds target range. You can see that it's right now the four week, which is the closest to the overnight rate, right, is at 4.19%. And the bottom of the Fed funds target range is 4.25%. So six basis points below the bottom of the target range. But anyway, so I'll be watching that closely. Let's go back to look at some other things here. Oil is a big one. I'm going to turn these off. Oil is down big on the week. Let's take a look at the daily. Daily, it's a little bit, um, but it's nothing, nothing wow. Okay, let's, I, I did notice something here on the, is that it? No, that wasn't it. Where was it? The 50. It was the 50. All right. So let's turn these off and take a look at this 50 day moving average with oil and how it just popped right into there and was rejected uh, off the 50 day moving average. That is a very bearish development. Okay. Bearish development for the price of oil. Um, crazy. 
All right. What other, what else do we have? Let's take a look at stock market. Stock market is higher on the day, a whole one and a half percent. So it's having a good day so far. We'll see if this continues. It's interesting because there was the jobs report that was more jobs than expected added, but lower pay increase, uh, you know, lower wage increase than expected. So kind of a mixed report. Um, and I talked about this on FedWatch that there's a lot of mixed signals right now going on in the market. And so it's making people uh, question, well, it's, it's most indicators are showing that we're going to slow down, but there's a couple here, just like the jobs numbers that are not agreeing with this. Um, so the Fed is kind of confused, I think, at the time. Okay, so that's it for charts. Let me pause here to do an admin note. So guys, Ansel Linder, Bitcoin and Markets, uh, streaming on Twitter, Instagram, Telegram, YouTube. <laughs> so lots of different places. And I'm enjoying uh, the Telegram community. So join the Telegram at t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. We're doing a lot of chit chat. We've talked about just in the last 24 hours, we've talked about Bitcoin. We've talked about CBDCs. We've talked about um, the vaccine. We've talked about what else? the stuff going on with the House of Representatives and the Speaker, you know, McCarthy and what, what's going on there. We've talked about populism, inflation. I mean, it's, it's really going on over there on the Telegram. So t.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets. Okay. And if you hear that popping, that's my chair. If you guys want to support me so I can get a new chair, go to bitcoinandmarkets.com and become a paid member. $5 a month, you can support me making this content. All right. Uh, let's go into Safedine stuff. Before I do that, I want to say, that I really respect Safe. I think he is a very sound economist, but like most old school Austrians, they have blinders on when it comes to credit-based money. And they probably will hear my critiques and be like, oh, that's, that's garbage. But uh, these are my critiques of these arguments. It's in a academic way or a way to learn an educational way. I'm not uh, trying to take pot shots at anybody and I try to keep it very respectful. But um, anyway, let's get into this episode. In my next book, and I'm very delighted to have Professor Pooley here to talk to us about it today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I see you've got a copy of the Bitcoin Standard behind you. So thank you for yes, that. Yes, indeed. <laughs> it's it's the you... uh, number one recommended book for my students in money and banking. It's like, you got to read this book to understand money and what it's about. So, you know, it's about Bitcoin, but it's really about money. So uh, you did such a great job. All right. I'm just double checking that this is coming through properly because I'm hearing feedback on my end, but I hope it's coming through for you guys. All right, here we go running on that topic so thank you sir appreciate it so let's begin a little bit with a personal background uh, what got you into economics and what got you into julian simon's work and then eventually led to you publishing um, super abundance you know i just uh, i had to take an econ class uh, as an accounting major and i just uh, kind of fell in love with econ uh, you know accounting was very interesting but economics was very inspiring i just felt like if you could learn these principles you would be able to see the future before anybody else did so it was it was very interesting to me uh ended up doing a, a bachelor's in econ and then went on to montana state and that was actually where i met julian simon he came to uh, our campus and gave a little little interview uh, a little seminar. And at that time it was 1981. So he just made this bet with, um, with Paul Ehrlich. So we were all interested about this and, and, 
if you recall, uh, let me throw a couple slides up here and I'll kind of show you what, uh, you know, the, the story was about. So uh, Ehrlich had written this book. Simon said, you know, we first read the book and he says, yeah, that, that book sounds like it makes sense, but uh, maybe I should check the, the facts against it, see what the history said. And he, he concluded, look, uh, there's some problems here. I, I don't think this is actually going to happen. So they go back and forth and have this, they have this pretty public dispute about what the future is going to hold, this relationship between resources and population. It was really kind of based on this uh, theory that Thomas Malthus had put on the table back in 1798 that said, uh, look, uh, over time, food's going to grow at a linear rate, but population's going to grow at an exponential rate. This gap is ultimately going to cause society to collapse. So uh, Simon reads this book and says, you know, I think the facts suggest something different. And they go back and forth. And finally, Simon says, well, why don't we bet? You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, the beauty of being a professor is you can say whatever you want to and never really have to be held accountable for it. Right. But uh, Simon put Simon put Ehrlich on the table and said, let's put a thousand bucks on the table and you pick any kind of non-renewable commodity, whatever, and and we'll bet. And so uh, Ehrlich picked five metals, copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten, and they put a thousand dollars on the table. Bet starts in 1980, concludes in 1990. So it's this 10-year bet. The idea was if it, whatever percent it goes up, adjusted for inflation, if it goes up, Ehrlich, uh, if it goes up, Simon, you got to pay Ehrlich the difference. If it's down, Ehrlich has to pay Simon. So they both kind of had this uh, theory about this relationship between resources and population. Uh, Ehrlich said, look, as population increases, resources are going to become less and less abundant. Uh, they're gonna, we're going to run out. The price is going to go up and we're going to have this huge problem. Simon said, yeah, there is a relationship between the two, but this is what it looks like. As population increased, uh, these resources became more and more abundant. The price actually had gone down further and further. So they have this bet. And over the course of 10 years, we're all watching this bet, you know, watching these prices go up and down. And at the conclusion of the bet, uh, you know, here's one of the uh, the most important one of the most important checks I've written in economics, in my view. Uh, this this the check that Paul had to write Julian for five hundred seventy six dollars. Now, adjusted for inflation, that was a thirty six percent drop in the prices of those five commodities. Some of them dropped more than that. And this happened during the decade when we added eight hundred and fifty million people to the planet. So, how was it that we could add so many people? at the same time have these prices drop. So that was really kind of, you know, I've always been interested in that. Always had this interest in, in Julian. And All right. So I'm going to jump in here. And my response to this stuff is that it's, they're taking data from a very limited, very limited time frame, of course. And they talk about this extensively here. Uh, they say, oh, it's only 10 years. And he's like, oh, well, we, what we did is we went back 40 years, actually. And we looked from 1980 to uh, 2018 and we mapped all this stuff out. But remember, that still is a very limited subsection of time and prices. And so th they're trying to expand, make this rule for all of economics, all of time based on 40 years when we've been under a credit-based system. You know, they picked the exact time frame when we've had a credit-based system and we've been able to expand, expand, expand. What happened in the 80s? It was the uh, Japanese miracle. What happened in the, the double aughts or whatever you call the uh, first decade of the 2000s was the Chinese miracle. And so we've had all of these, this monetary expansion, this credit expansion, that the world has never seen before. So yeah, you have these prices of commodities coming down, but it's due to credit expansion. And that's a funny thing to say, because think about like a credit market, uh, 
the Austrian school will say, oh, there is obviously this business cycle. And the business cycle is driven off of uh, fractional reserve banking or, or pumping out credit into the system. At first, you have good investments or at least productive investments, but investments get less and less productive and you eventually have a credit collapse and you crash again, right? And that is the business cycle. Well, during that business cycle, what would the output of commodities be? You know, if there's, it's going to be pumped up, it's going to be pumped up the output of the commodities because of more investment into uh, the industrial sector, more investment into uh, different businesses. And people are going to have more money to go out and spend and buy widgets that create, you know, produce the demand that has uh, for people to go out and mine. So it is an inflationary, it's a consequence of a credit boom that you get decreasing prices of commodities. And that sounds really crazy to say, but that's true. See, the, the difference between the Neo-Austrians and the Austrians is that the, the Neo-Austrians, they understand credit-based money. We have credit-based money today. We do not have fiat money. All right, fiat money, when I print fiat money, I print, like, look at my balance sheet, okay? When I print fiat money, I plus up my assets. Boom. That, that, yeah, I agree. That's money printing. That's inflationary, highly inflationary. All right? But in credit-based money, I don't just plus up my assets. I plus up my liabilities. And then another person pluses up their liabilities and assets respectively. And so that is the difference between credit-based money and fiat money. We do have, I would say, you could call it fiat credit, fiat credit system or something, but it's not pure fiat money. And my argument is one reason, I mean, I'm not a Malthusian, uh, but one reason is that we've seen this decrease in commodities is because of an increase in credit. We've pumped up this system. And we'll go into a lot more of this, but they never even talk or consider peace, global peace, as being an input here. And what do I mean by global peace? Well, there's been no war between major powers since World War II. This Ukraine is the first, the closest, I would say, the first and closest uh, that we've gotten to a war between major powers in the world. So in a peaceful time, that affects how the economy works as well. That affects the functioning of the free market. Um, and we'll get into that. Now this, when I'm playing this, I'm getting some really crazy feedback. And so it's hard for me to concentrate on what they're saying because I'm getting a double feedback, but we're going to keep going on this and see if uh, I can make it better maybe. So, all right, let's continue here. His work and here a, a couple of years ago, you know, I'm, I'm reading this paper that Marion Tupi had written, this uh, guy at the Cato Institute, and he had kind of did this uh, little update to the Simon uh, bet. And so I, I reached out to him, we, uh, do something together. Let's, let's look at these prices. Let's expand this to 50 commodities. Uh, you know, one of the two of the critiques of the Simon Ehrlich bet was one, it was only for 10 years, and two, it was only five commodities. So we said, well, let's stretch it out for 38 years and uh, go to 50 commodities, materials, uh, we have metals, and then we have these uh, uh, other materials. 
materials. And uh, so what we discovered, uh, went back to 1980, World Bank keeps track of all the nominal prices uh, of these commodities. They actually do a monthly report of these commodities. So we had a really good data set of, of data. But the other thing that we did is we use time prices. Now, time prices are, and we call it, we buy things with money, but we really pay for them with time. And so we decided to use time prices. And the time price is pretty, really pretty easy to calculate. Let me show you how we do the time price. So time price is simply, um, so time price, uh, money prices are expressed in dollars and cents. The time prices are expressed in hours and minutes, and it's pretty easy to convert a time price or a money price to a time price. We just take the time, we take the money price and divide it by hourly income. So that will express things in dollars and cents. And what that allowed us to do then is to time prices offer really five advantages over money prices. Our, our friend George Gilder uh, offers these three propositions. He says, wealth is knowledge, growth is learning, and money is time. And from those three propositions, we can derive this theorem that you can measure the growth in knowledge with time. And the way we do it is with these is with time prices. So <clears throat> we take these time prices and we uh, we convert all of these prices, money prices to time prices. Then we look at the change in the time price over time. In other words, how much time did it take you to earn you know a pound of sugar last year, and how much time does it take you to earn a pound of sugar today? If the time price is going up or down, that's reflecting more or less abundance. So we go out and we start doing this analysis and we just, uh, we started with these 50 basic commodities and what we found when we first, first year we did it, we, we've done it for, for four years now, the first year we did it, we found that the uh, time price on the average of these 50 uh, basic commodities had fallen by, those are the commodities. So we had energy, uh, oil, natural gas, coal, we had food, so we had coffee, tea, peanuts, wheat, barley, uh, corn. Uh, bananas. We had materials like lumber and cotton and wool and hides, uh, rubber, aluminum. We had all these metals. So what we found is that over this, these time prices from 1980 to 2018 had fallen by 71%. And it was like, wow, wow. What that means is for the time it takes you to buy one of these in 1980, you get almost three and a half of them in 2018. So your personal abundance had actually increased by 252%. And so we were really surprised with this. Recall at the same time, we compared that to population and populace 38 years. All right. So my response to this section is simply that, yeah, your personal abundance has increased, but has your welfare increased? There, there's a problem here that is throughout this entire episode where they equate abundance to welfare. And that's not necessarily the case. Makes me think of this animal experiment that somebody did. I, I remember hearing about this, about somebody made a mouse heaven, right? They made this, this uh, large room, maybe like the size, a 12 by 12 box. And they put everything that mice could ever want into this this uh, box and made it like mouse heaven. And what happened after a period of time, they actually like went insane. These mice went insane. Um, it's the same thing. Humans, you know, when you give us this abundance, we, we aren't necessarily better off. So the, the, the I don't like the abundance argument because one thing is uh, the abundance is driven by credit or enabled by credit credit will push you know push and push and push and it also has an inertia all its own right credit has an inertia 
So even if the human animal is being harmed by this overabundance, not superabundance, but overabundance, uh, the credit has an inertia of its own because you need to earn dollars to pay off your debt, right? This is the way the world is set up. This is the way the financial system works. This is the way that everything is built around paying off your debts. And so that has this inertia towards more and more and more and more credit. Um, even if that credit is negative produ productivity, you still pump more and more credit just so you can pay your debt. So there is this negative inertia to, or this inertia to, to a credit system and a credit cycle um, that takes it over and above and turns superabundance into overabundance. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that that's, if you look at what he's saying here in those, those regards, I mean, of course, uh, you know, you always need to just think about this too. If, if the global credit is increasing by 5% a year or something, or the, let's just actually, we need to talk about interest rates. So if the kind of average global interest rate is 5%, money needs to increase by 5% a year just to service that debt, right? So you're constantly having to find ways to squeak efficiency out. You're constantly having to find ways to go out and innovate and do a little bit more and get that 10% return. Squeeze 10% out. You even go into financial innovation as well. And you find credit default swaps and mortgage-backed securities. And you have all this financial innovation because you're trying to squeeze out this marginal marginal um, profit to make sure you can service that debt. So it's not any wonder that during a credit-based system, we're going to have massive increases in quantity, in abundance. But that's not superabundance. That's overabundance. All right, let's continue with this. It, it is kind of jarring for me to hear him echoed about 10 seconds later, but I'm trying to pay attention and uh, let's, I hope it's not doing that for you guys. I don't think it is. So let's go with this and, and see what we can learn. Year period had increased by 71%. So it's like, that's interesting. Every time population goes up by a percent, uh, these commodities become, the price falls by 1%. What explains that? And that's where we go back to Jim Simon. And he says, well, the explanation is straightforward. Innovation is what we really, what allows us to escape poverty. And innovation is a consequence of human beings having ideas and then having the freedom to act on these ideas. And those ideas become inventions. And then these inventions go to the market and the market decides whether they've created value or not. And he said, look, if you want more innovation, you gotta be in favor of more ideas and human beings are the source of those ideas. So his theory said, as you have more population, you're going to have more ideas, and that's what's actually going to make these things more abundant. He also makes this distinction between, and uh, in, in our our friend Thanos in Infinity War, he's, he makes this statement about the universe is finite and its resources finite. Well, it's half true. The universe, the Earth, is a it has a finite number of atoms, but resources are not finite because resources are really uh, a function of knowledge. It's knowledge. The difference between our day and the Stone Age as George Gilder says, is entirely due to the growth in, of knowledge. We're growing knowledge, and that's what makes atoms valuable, is when you add knowledge to them. And we, don't, we have a finite number of atoms, but creativity does not appear to be finite. So uh, that's where we started. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's an extremely important point, which I would say more than 99% of... Not 
No, what think, makes things valuable is your subjective valuation of that. Oh, man, I'm getting double feedback. One second. All right. Jeez. Sorry, guys. I'm trying to learn this uh, juggling all these different platforms. But, um, yeah, so what, what makes things valuable is not the arrangement of the atoms. It's the subjective valuation of the arrangement of those atoms. I don't care. Like, think about this. I don't care how well someone can make a buggy whip i'm not going to buy it they can it can take them years to learn how to wrap the leather just right you know how to make it just flexible perfectly flexible enough and and all this all these things and then they make the actual materials to make the leather and make all these things and the tassels or whatever you put on a buggy whip i don't know it it costs 50 dollars in material and then a lifetime's worth of knowledge but I don't care. The market doesn't care, right? So what gives something its value is the subjective valuation of the market. And the subjective valuation of the market is not always going to be what, what it is today. You know, there's going to be periods where uh, the market shifts completely out from underneath people. The market can change completely overnight. Another thing, too, is I'll go back to this peace thing, which they never bring up, global peace that we've had over the last uh, 80 years, is that in, in a time and place when there's not artillery shells falling on my head, yeah, I can innovate the next iPhone app, all right? But when I have artillery pieces landing on my house, then I, I can't spend the same amount of time innovating. And if I do innovate, it's probably going to be some sort of defensive technology. It's not going to be this, you know, a technology for uh, efficiency gains in certain industries. It's going to be, how do I keep this artillery from falling on my head? And so in a world of global peace, yeah, technology has advanced in a certain direction. Another thing too is it, when you're faced with different periods of time, like humans haven't really faced famine uh, on the scale that they have in the past. I guess some places still have famines and things like that. But if there was a general famine or if there was, um, you know, general food, food shortage, or there was some period of global war again, you know, a lot of our free time wouldn't be spent innovating. It would be spent praying. So the subjective valuation, and it doesn't even have to be a lot, like it has to be just a marginal amount. It has to be just a marginal amount of people that shift from thinking about innovation, doing this X, Y, Z, because only, you know, all the inventions just come from a certain percentage of people. It's not like everybody has this great world changing idea. It's a very, very few people. One, one example they use a little bit later is, you know, um, if you go from having a million people to a billion people, now you have 1000 Steve Jobs. And 1,000 Elon Musks. Okay, great. But what if there is a marginal change that takes that 0.0001% and actually decreases it by one or two and makes them more religious because they're in a existential crisis? So the bubble that we have been in over the last 80 years, and you can extend that too. Uh, one thing they use, they start talking about population in, in the 1800s 
and how it has, um, you know, it was about a billion people in the year 1800 and now it's 8 billion. But in that time as well, you know, the British empire ended a lot of things. They were almost single-handedly responsible for ending slavery to a high degree. You know, 99% of slavery, they ended. Uh, they also had, uh, you know, a global reach, a global empire, the largest empire the world has ever known. And it was, they, they enforced a level of peace, at least in the Commonwealth, right? They were able to enforce a level of peace in the world. And now after post-World War II, that peace has become extreme and supercharged under the United States. And so that is, you know, when you look at periods of time, uh, and you're only using the last 50 years or maybe even the last 200 years, you're not getting like the true human nature. A lot of these uh, old school Austrians, they don't appreciate human nature. I mean, warfare is the the common state of the human animal. We are not rational in like I I do not have very much uh confidence in the rationality of human beings. Just look around you. There's sheeple everywhere. There, peop, there's mass psychosis everywhere. I mean, Saifedean will know that when you eat a, a poor diet, your gut health changes, you get in a different mood, you might be more temperamental, you do X, Y, Z, right? And that is just eating the wrong thing for a, a couple weeks. Your gut health changes the way you think and the way you act, and perhaps your market decisions. So I don't have, and, and I mean, there's market decisions where people will act against their own self-interest. They will act against their own self-interest if they're in a mass psychosis. You know, just think about the, the kids that rat out their parents in, you know, 1940s Germany or any sort of totalitarian state, people do things against their own self-interest. And that's an extreme case, but let's, you know, it's a spectrum. What if they're just doing that 10%, which is what a lot of people are doing today by going along with his ESG thing. You know, I just saw a news item about Belgium shutting down one of their last remaining nuclear power plants. They're shooting themselves in the foot. They're actually acting against their own self-interest. They don't understand. I have very little uh, appreciation, I guess, or confidence in the rationality of human beings. The constant state is the, the, the state of nature is warfare. That's the, the state of nature. Um, I mean, I sound very Hobbesian, but the, the state of nature is warfare, not within your tribe or within your your area, but you know, there's natural geographic boundaries between populations of people. And they tend to be the boundaries that fight wars. People fight wars over interest. They fight wars over resources. Anyways, let's continue on with this. And I'm sure I have something to say here in a few minutes. Actually, where are we at? Let's go forward to another time. This is going to be a long, long show guys. So buckle up. Buckle up. 38 minutes is where I'm going. There we go. Boom.
Boom, boom. And go. Yeah, and I think a very fascinating uh, paper here was one written by uh, Michael Kramer, who was an economist at uh, Chicago, I believe, who was one of the co-recipients of the Bank of Sweden Prize a couple of years ago. Usually they don't give it to very good people like Bernanke and uh, 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 Krugman, but every now and then uh, one of the good ones uh, gets gets it by mistake, I presume. Uh, but he wrote the a fascinating- joke is, is they, they turn bad after they get the award. You know, it's like they did pretty good, and then they get the award, and it's like, then they go bad. So. <laughs> yeah. They should have never got the award award right go ahead yeah. sorry no there's although no some of them were bad all along uh Krugman definitely <laughs> and Bernanke so he, he he has a paper called population growth and technological change 1 million BC to 1990 and sounds outlandish but it is actually a very interesting paper and he uh, performs three tests of the hypothesis that it is um essentially the Julian hypothesis is it uh, is an increase in human population uh, an impediment to advancement and economic progress, or is it not? And so uh, if the driver of economic growth was the availability of physical resources, then you would expect that periods of lower population would be able to grow faster. Whereas, because you know, if you look at a certain population, there's a small population and a bit of land. So clearly, if it's a small population, they have a lot of resources, you would expect that they would have fast growth. But uh, on the other hand, if you had a large population in that same area, you would expect that the population growth would be slower, right? And then he looks at it historically, and he finds that it's not the case. In fact, as the population increases, we witness that population growth also increases. In other words, economic growth increases as the population increases. So if the driver of economic growth was technological advancement, which is his argument, then you would expect to witness the opposite. Periods of high population result in more technological discoveries and thus faster economic and population growth. This is, uh, I'm not quoting him, by the way, I'm just reading from uh, my book. So the evidence suggests the latter is the case. In other tests, in, uh, you find that there's faster growth when the population is higher. And then in another test of the same hypothesis, Kramer compares the population density and economic growth rates across different geographic regions that were historically isolated from each other. So he looks at Australia, which is an isolated region. So, you know, you had a very big continent with very few people on it, should have led to a lot of economic growth compared to Europe, Asia, and Africa, which were all connected, but were massively populated, much more populated than Australia, much higher population density. And similarly, uh, the smaller little isolated islands, I think he uses Easter Island and I think maybe Tasmania in Australia because that was isolated. And he finds that you know these little tiny islands would have, you would expect that they would have very fast economic growth, but in fact, you find the opposite. The crowded areas have higher which again supports the idea that this technological innovation, because if it was physical resources, then more people are consuming more of the stuff that's in Earth. Whereas if it was uh, if it was technological innovation, then more people means more ideas. And then the really powerful idea here is that ideas are non-rival. It takes one guy to invent the wheel, and then everybody sees him, everybody copies him, everybody benefits from the wheel, you know? So with all of these inventions, one person invents it, and then everybody copies it, and everybody benefits from it. So if the real driver of economic growth is that we can get ideas, then you would expect that a higher population, you know, if, ev if out of every one million people, you get one person who can invent a wheel and one person who can invent an incredibly powerful medicine and one person who can uh, do the So the more millions you have, the more wheels and the more medicines and the more inventions you have, and then everybody benefits from the wheels. Everybody benefits from the medicines. Everybody gets better off. And in fact, that's what the data shows. And I think it's a it's a, it's a very well argued paper. And I think it's a it's it's an extremely compelling addition to the uh, Simon uh, repertoire of arguments. All right. So that's very interesting. I've never heard about that paper. Uh, what do you say? One billion BC to twenty twenty or something. Uh, 
and that economic growth was larger in the more populated areas, even though you would expect the opposite because there would be more resources per person in the least less populated areas. But I would be interested to read that paper because, you know, before say the year 1800, GDP was the same as population. One person was one unit of GDP because there was no huge benefit to technology or, or anything like that. So uh, that's why when, when people talk about, oh, China and India had you know, ruled, they dominated global GDP until just about the year 1700 or 1800 or something like that. Well, that's because back then we measured GDP in population. It was one to one. So it's almost like an identity to say that economic growth was higher in places that had higher population because that is by definition what it, how it was measured, okay? He also said that crowded areas tended to have higher population growth. And I mean, when you look at history, you have uh, the effect of, you know, industrialization and you have the effect, the effect of uh, lowering infant mortality and all of that, that's been the biggest driver towards population growth is just a reduction in infant mortality uh, and childhood diseases um, and maybe dying of things like, you know, in the past, you might die from an infection of a broken bone, where today you don't necessarily do that. So the that's where a lot of the population growth has come from. And that kind of makes sense if you think, okay, in a crowded area, you're going to have more uh expert people. You're going to have more doctors, you know, more uh, wet nurses, more of all these other things that you can uh, have to help you get through these types of uh, fatal things. But if you live way out in a rural area and you break your leg, you're 50 miles from the nearest doctor that could set that, that bone for you. So um, yeah, that makes sense that crowded areas grow faster. Um, now then he leaps to the conclusion that more people equals more, uh, geniuses and more breakthroughs, more ideas. And that is not the case in my opinion. I mean, the probability maybe is greater, but that doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. Uh, you have a greater possibility of disease breaking out and killing a lot of people too. You have a greater possibility of bad people you know, serial killers, authoritarian governments, uh, you have a, a higher probability of that. It's, it's that, you know, the more population you have, the more of everything you have, not necessarily the more ideas, like definitely not the more ideas per capita, but uh, the more, like the, the bad can outweigh the good as well. Again, the, the, we are we have recency bias of the last 80 years with the US and the last 200 years with the British Empire. So we have this recency bias that, oh yeah, well, of course, these trends that we've seen over the last 80 years, that is nature. That's natural, but it's not, okay? Na nature is going back to the, the year uh, 1000 and seeing if those statistics remained. Uh, or you go back to the year 500 BC and see if those statistics hold. I mean, we're, we're sitting in a bubble right here that most likely is not going to last very long. Um, so it has unique properties and a lot of these things that they are 
attributing to free market is actually comes from credit-based system. But okay, let's continue. All right, I'm going to fast forward to another section here. Rises and says that you've created something of value. I don't know if I've created something of value or not. My mother says, hey, you're a genius. You've created something of value. You have to have a market where people can then determine whether value has been created. And that market has to be free, where prices can move up and down, where you have entry of both buyers and sellers, because that part of the information equation allows us to be able to say, oh, oh, that's what I should do, or that's what I should not do. Those signals that a market provides are key to being able to guide entrepreneurs and consumers to move forward in the development of these things that are valuable. And yes. a, a, the difference between an innovation and an invention is an innovation is a valuable invention. It's the value that determines whether it's an innovation or not, not, not the technical feasibility. It's the, it's the value that it creates. Uh, for, for the market that determines whether it's really truly an innovation. Absolutely. And ultimately that value is determined subjectively um, because there's, there's, no, there's no objective way of determining what is and is not valuable, but this, there, is a, there is a subjective way, which is uh, people are free to choose it. And then if they like it, they give up real resources that they could use elsewhere in order to get it. And that's, that, that, that's really the eternal dance of progress depends on this. Uh, progress is just us continuing to do this. And once we stop that, we see this stop. All through right. history, you see these examples that uh, once uh, people aren't free to innovate and choose, then everything falls apart. Right. Creation and valuation. Are, are yes. you able to create and are you free to value things? And then, and then that signal gets sent to everybody else that we all then can, can act on that new, new information that the price system is giving all of us. Yeah. So, yeah. So now let's shift to the topic of inflation, which I think is a very interesting underlying theme. In all. About valuing things um, all there and being free to value things. Um, yeah, I think that's a great point. And he said, like, when you're not free to value things, that things fall apart. Well, of course they do. That's what I said, that when artillery is coming down, that the the market changes, right? You value different things. And we've grown up in this, or we've grown up, we've, I've grown up, I've lived in this bubble. Safe Adin has lived in this bubble. So has uh, Pooley ha has lived in this bubble since the world, since World War II, when we've had general peace and we haven't had to worry about armies marching across the border or raiding, you know, Viking raiding parties and, and all of these, these things. Yeah, I think that the, Peace is necessary for this, uh, and being free to choose is very, very important. But that is not the base case of humanity. The base case of humanity is not being free to choose. So anyway, let, let's continue with this. All of this discussion. First, and I don't see this being brought up often. I don't even think that uh, Julian Simon spoke about it. But I think, you know, it's no coincidence that uh, people like Paul Ehrlich and all of these um, uh, Malthusians became extremely popular in the 1970s. You know, Malthus died in 1840. Oh, one more thing on Malthus. You know, when he was writing his book, the world's population was around 1 billion people in 1800. And now we're up to 8 billion. As you say, maybe next week, we're going to hit 8 billion, which is a great milestone. Hopefully we get another 10 more before I die. Um, so we had a world of 1 billion. We already had Malthus saying we're reaching the limits. And here we are, 8 billion people strong. And still, we're not running. We've never run out of anything. We've never run out of any of the things that Malthus told us we would run out of. 
And I think most tellingly, to the extent that we do have uh, famines and starvation and um, economic hardship anywhere, it is man-made and it's not a physical limit on it. You know, you have uh, horrific political and economic systems that are putting people in very bad shape. Uh, you know, it's it, it's not because uh, it's not because Somalia has uh, an, a lack of food resources that people in Somalia. Somalia might suffer from a famine. It's because, you know, I mean, there's an ocean next to them with an enormous amount of fish and there's all kinds of resources that could be exploited. It's just our inability to produce because of political factors. So this, I think, continues. I mean, ironically, in a sense, Maltus hit upon this right at the time when the Industrial Revolution came along and allowed human productivity to go up and allowed human uh, ingenuity to thrive. You know, the steam engine comes about and we start utilizing uh, hydrocarbon energy sources and a human productivity shoots up, you know, first with coal, then with oil and then with gas. And we just keep and then we develop nuclear energy and we just keep getting more and more productive and we have more and more energy at our disposal. And then the 1970s come along and, you know, as that famous website that is very popular on Bitcoin Twitter says, what the F happened in 1971? Suddenly, 1971, uh, price of everything starts shooting. What he said there about, you know, none of the stuff that Malthus warned it about came true. And I agree with that. I'm not a Malthusian. I'm a neo-Austrian. And the what the Austrians have warned about hasn't come about either, right? They've cried and or screamed about inflation, inflation, hyperinflation is coming. Remember, 40% of all dollars in existence were supposedly printed in 2021. Okay. Well, where, where is that? You know, like the, where's the hyperinflation where we did QE, right? Before QE, there was only like, what was it? 800 billion or something uh, on the feds balance sheet. And after QE, there was 8 trillion. So where is that inflation? Where is it guys? The, the thing is that the same FUD that the Austrians accuse Malthusians of doing is that what they have been spitting and the inflationistas have been spitting for decades now. Okay. And it hasn't come true. It hasn't come true. And it's the same thing when I hear out there, and, and I've talked about this a lot in the past, back in March or whatever, when oil was hitting its high and we had people like Luke Groman and others, they were saying, oh, Oil is going to $200, $300 a barrel. And we still hear that today, that oil is going to $200, $300 a barrel because of all this stuff. Uh, it's just a bunch of fear. It's just a bunch of fear. Same thing with the Malthusians. The, it's the exact same sin here is extrapolating based on extremely limited understanding of economics. Um, so I think that the Austrians need to question their assumptions that they assume certain things is considered money supply when it's not. Now, if they just step back and said, oh, well, maybe we'd have money supply wrong. Maybe we're counting the wrong thing as money. Then maybe they would come to the same conclusions as the neo-Austrians like myself. So uh, yeah, that's what I had to say about that. Let's uh, continue here. He's talking about 1971. Uh, and I want to point out here, too, that they, they still don't talk about global peace. They talk about that. Well, he did talk about it there. Like in Somalia, they have political problems that get in the way of economic advancement. So I guess they did. He did kind of talk about it there, but not from a global scale. Not like when I, you know, Pooley, when he's looking at 37 commodities 
over a 40 year period. And he draws a conclusion about this and he doesn't say, well, shit, this whole time has been under the, the UN, the WTO, the IMF, um, you know, NATO, we've had the world court, we've had international, you know, regulations over maritime travel that have been enforced by the hegemon. So there's all sorts of different things that are unique about this period that happen to be right when they're studying their thing, right? You needed to step back and be like, well, what if the whole world becomes Somalia? Which is what would happen if there was a deglobalization, which is what I think is coming. Um, so technology is not a straight line. That, that's another thing. But when I hear these guys, when I hear Austrians talk, or when I heard these two talk, uh, it was very, very progressive. You know, no matter what, guys, human beings are on a linear path to utopia. All that needs to happen is the government needs to get out of our way, don't you know? The government needs to leave us alone, and we will grow at 5% a year, and it'll be utopia. No, of course that's wrong, dude. There is no, there, there is no linear path to utopia, okay? This is not progressivism. The world is, does not obey progressive rules. Just look at nature. You know, you have wildfires that come down and scorch the earth. But it plants, you know, it makes it fertile soil for the next generation, the next thing to come up. Same thing with human beings. Same thing. We go through cycles. Think about that. Like uh, a Roman in 475, one year before Rome, the Western Roman Empire supposedly fell. They, they probably thought, you know, there was this linear progression or something. I don't know. But the, of course not. It stopped and it regressed for a few years, a few centuries. It changed into feudalism and then we had the um, enlightenment and all that. So yeah, we go in these big long cycles and there's no linear progression to utopia. That's a big problem that I have with Austrians is they're they are not, uh, I should say old school Austrians, not neo-Austrians. Uh, old school Austrians, they have this this idea that, oh, if there's if the government just gets out of the way, we're going to be up and to the left or sorry, up and to the right, just grow, grow, grow utopia. But of course that's not true. We will go in cycles no matter what. There's a natural cycle to human beings, just like there's a natural cycle to the population of hares and foxes. There's going to be a natural ebb and flow to the economy of humanity. And the natural ebb and flow to our psychology and a natural ebb and flow to our religion and a natural ebb and flow to our fertility rates and a natural ebb and flow to diseases and a natural ebb and flow. I mean, on and on and on and on. We're just animals existing in the environment, existing in nature. And I'll say this right here that um, one of the ideas, and I, this reminds me of Jason Lowry when I was listening to his stuff recently uh, and there. And the same with safe and same, I guess, Austrians in general is they have th this over uh, confidence in humanity's excellence, in the excellence of human consciousness and the excellence in human, uh, like we are the tip of the spear of evolution. But of course, that's not true. We exist within a soup. I mean, there's life all around us. There's more bacteria in human body than 
human cells. So we are just a walking host for bacteria and it depends how you look at it, right? Like maybe they're just using us. Maybe the bacteria are using our brains and our phenotypes to exist. And they are, that's exactly what they're doing. So which is more superior, right? Which is, which is the more superior technology or way of life? You know, bacteria will outlive humans most likely. So anyway, I just wanted to add that in there. Let's continue with this. Okay, we have a few more minutes and then I'm going to wrap it up. I've already been going for a while. All right, let's do this. Moving up and we see ourselves in this new world in which everything starts to become more and more scarce. And I think the real driver of this obviously is inflation. It's, uh, you know, 1971, the um, dollars disconnect was, it was no longer redeemable in gold. Up, up until 1914, anybody could redeem any dollar in gold from the U.S. government. By 1971, only other central banks could redeem uh, dollars uh, in gold. But then after 1971, nobody could redeem dollars in gold. Now, not coincidentally, the price of an ounce of gold at that time was about $35. And uh, today it's, uh, I think, 1600 or 1700 something like that. I, I don't really follow very closely anymore. Uh, but, you know, it's obviously went up enormously quickly. And all throughout the 70s, we had an enormous increase in the uh, dollar exchange rate uh, to gold, as well as the rise of the prices of everything, oil, copper, zinc, nickel, everything got a lot more expensive in the 1970s. And I think this is the driver of the um, scarcity mentality. This is what, this is, I think, the wind in the sails of all of the environmental hysterics and all of the ideas that we are going to ruin the planet come from the fact that people are shocked at the fact that they can no longer afford things that they could afford a few years ago. And they think it must be physical and geographic limits and natural limits rather than just, you know, their central bank, because you don't want to believe the ugly truth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're clearly right. When you look at uh, what happened prior to August 15th, 1971, Sunday morning, you know, what Nixon did was to really create, uh, create a lot of chaos in the world, because now you, you don't have this trust in currency that uh, a lot of people that really have these long time horizons and, uh, yeah, it's, you know, how are we going to get that trust back? It's just like the fiat world is upon us. Um, now, what, what I would say is that what we observed in our data is, yeah, we had this huge price increase, but we also tend to see wages will catch up and exceed those prices over time. So when you first have this new, uh, new money that's created, it tends to show up in, in people trying to grab the money and put it in something that they hope is going to, to hold its value over time. Uh, so you'd see these big pushes in commodity and commodities and real estate and, you know, the stock market, for example, it's like, well, you want to just trend line uh, Fed expansion, uh, look at uh, look at the Dow and see if the comparison is there, look at real estate. You know, the problem with those two things is all this new money is trying to chase return and purchasing power. Um, so you've, you've taken people's focus away from creating new capital and creating new wealth to trying to protect it. That has been one of the, the huge downsides of this fiat world that we, we live in. But we also note that over time, wages tend to catch up and exceed those changes in, in money prices, which make the time price go down. But people don't see that. They don't think of the time price. They just think of the money price. So they're not doing the comparison against wages. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it's a little, little, little difficult because you're seeing all these prices go up, but you realize your wages are probably going to go up as well here over time. Yeah, and I think people are likely to fool themselves into wanting to believe that the reason my wages are going up is just because I'm becoming uh, more productive. 
you know, the, the earth is becoming more, more scarce, but I am becoming more productive. So it evens out and the central bank is just trying its best <laughs> to help. Uh, that, that I presume helps people sleep better at night. But I think, you know, the counterfactual here, and you know, the, the, the really interesting thing for economists is to think about, um, as uh, Bastia calls it, the unseen. The counterfactual here is to go back to that uh, chart of all these uh, prices dropping, you know, the uh, all, all of the uh, commodities decreasing in price. The question then is, well, what would have happened had we stayed on a hard money standard and continued to witness these enormous improvements in productivity? I mean, I think it's probably safe to argue that the prices of things would have dropped by something similar, but obviously not precisely. This isn't uh, chemistry. This isn't physics. We don't have exact equations to predict, but I presume it would have been totally uh, normal that you know the price of sugar would have dropped by something in the range of 86% over those 40 years. The price of rice by 76%, the price of corn by 74%. Um, all these bad examples keeps <laughs> propping up things that I don't like, but coal at 70%. You know, that's Imagine a world in which all of these things continue to drop by these quantities, beef by 67%. In, ter in nominal terms, I think this is much closer to where we would be. I'm not going to pretend that it would be uh, that, that, that there's any kind of precise science to how much it would drop. But yeah, about 75% decline in prices would be something to expect from this. Crude oil yeah. down 78%. So here, here's what I think is the reason we like to go to these long periods of analysis is you can, you can kind of... You, you... My response to this is th this is the same argument that Stefan Lavera had, and I did talk about that on the live stream here, um, saying that, oh, imagine where we would have been if we would have been on a hard money standard the whole time. But that totally, like, there's no way to uh, Monday morning quarterback economics. All right, we don't know. And Safe actually does mention it there to his credit. He says, you know, we don't know. This isn't chemistry. We don't know an exact uh, calculation or formula to find out what it would have been. Well, of course, because the economy evolves according to the market, the best, what's best for individuals at that time. The rise of credit-based money was the best at that time. And it, it did, it rose around the world, credit-based money did, the use of pure credit-based money. Because of the peace that was in the world, there was no war between great powers. There was also a lot of technological advance that could be low-hanging fruit for expanding of credit. And so credit, you could trust somebody in another country because, you know, like think about like an American bank could lend money into China because China was growing so quickly because of all this low-hanging fruit and the ability to industrialize that country. Same with Japan before that, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong. Uh, after World War II, you have the European countries that re-industrialized because of being bombed out, right? So the credit was a natural, people naturally went towards credit. So we can't say what would have happened if we didn't have this system. Well, most likely, and, and he says, oh, well, we could say it's going to be something close to how great it's been with credit. Of course, it's not going to be. If there was no ability to access credit, if there was not a credit-based system, you know what that would have meant? That would have meant that there was no global hegemon to enforce global peace between great powers. That would have meant that there was no trust between people. There was no globalization of supply chains. There was none of that. 
the reason why people go to a hard money standard is because trust breaks down in society. You know, there isn't as much free trade. So you can't trust your the other regional players, the other great powers or the lot of the ally of your of another great power. You can't trust them, so you have you force them to settle in hard money. See, as globalization breaks down, we're going to go back towards hard money. If globalization wasn't breaking down and, you know, trust was at increasing in the world, you know, like we're forming new international organizations instead of watching old or international organizations crumble and die. If we were seeing new international organizations being created and being successful, credit-based money would not be at its end. It would continue going. Then I would say, you know, well, we got to wait another 50 years, 100 years before Bitcoin gets its day. But right now, the reason why I can say Bitcoin is closer to getting its day is because trust is breaking down. So people will go to hard money. Just like think about Russia when they said the import-export stuff now, they're going to be able to settle in Bitcoin. At least that's the announcement that they made. Well, why do they do that? Because they want to settle in hard money because they don't trust people. They don't trust people not to freeze their accounts. They don't trust people not to uh, inflate the currency or whatever. So as trust breaks down, you have the incentive to go back to hard money. But just by saying, if we didn't have this easy money, we didn't have credit, um, we didn't have inflation over the last 50 years, we would have been in the same sort of place is absolutely not true. It's absolutely not true. We would have been, I mean, just think about what the global economy was, or even think about what your local economy was, wherever you're listening to this. If you're in Europe, if you're in Southeast Asia, you know, wherever, think about what the economy in your local area was in 1950. That's most likely what it would have been today if we wouldn't have had this system. Maybe a few percent better. But you probably, I mean, you might have had decades in there where you advanced and then you would have had some sort of economic calamity. Maybe your neighboring country had a war, so they had to tax the citizens. Maybe they did conscription and uh, your father was drafted, you know, or whatever. Like You never know what could happen. But with global peace initiated global trust initiated and a ability of currency that could expand. That is why we have the abundance, the overabundance that we have today. So that's a good way to, I think, take it full circle. Um, and I'll end this by saying that uh, I have the utmost respect for safe in this, this uh, professor Pooley, I guess. I really think Safe has done great work with his books so far. I hope he continues. I just hope that he takes a look at credit-based money, takes a look at peace. Um, and, you know, when when innovation is steered towards uh, military developments, it's not going to be steered towards other parts of the economy. And we're probably going back to a period like that. So anyways, that's all I got for today, guys. Thank you for joining me. Ansel Lindner, Bitcoin and Markets. I do these live streams uh, pretty much every weekday. You can also catch me on Thursdays at 1230 Eastern with Bitcoin Magazine on their YouTube channel and their Rumble channels. Um, thanks for joining me, everybody. And I will see you on the next one. Bye.